Uh, feel free to continue your conversations uh, after the service. Don't have to hurry away. You can join us for tea and coffee. Uh, we've actually got a, a, a new members area, not for new members, but it's new and it's a welcome area. So I've got that completely wrong. We've got a new welcome area uh, where there's tea and coffee and we would love to welcome you downstairs uh, into our new welcome area. So please do join with us downstairs. Please do feel free to continue chatting after the service. Alan uh, very kindly has been uh, prowling around the car park, pressing the beeper. To... <laughs> I didn't ask him to do that. I just asked him to hold on to it in case anyone came to the front. But he's uh, employed all his uh, detective skills and he's been beeping around. He now knows whose car it is, what's in the glove compartment. He's had a little... <laughs> He's had a little drive around. He is Scottish. Want not. Want not, waste not. Anyway, and so we know, we know a lot about you. It's a blue Vauxhall. I've never heard of this kind of car. Oviva? No. Oviva? Is that a kind of car? Okay, good. I'm looking at my car expert. Mariva. Oh, okay. Anyway, okay, there we go. So, Mariva, thanks, Jim. Anyway, the car index, the registration number is YX09PNV. So, if that's your car, Alan is somewhere between here and Inverness, <laughs> visiting his family. <laughs> Wonderful. And also, after coffee this morning, after coffee this morning, uh, we really would love some volunteers to help us set out for uh, Buzzy Beast tomorrow. So if you can, please, could you help us uh, to set up Buzzy Bees after the service? We'd be really grateful. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, I think it's on page 77-ish of the Pew Bible, or 76. Exodus chapter 19. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain, the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. Just, uh, we'll pause just for a second. Because our theology has been shaped by Cecil C. DeMille and Charlton Heston, we imagine that Moses went up this mountain just once. Actually, we're going to see that he goes up and down this mountain like nobody's business, which isn't bad going for someone in their 80s. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord said to him from the mountain, uh, Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, 
then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back, he goes down the mountain. So he went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. They shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on that person. Whether a person or an animal, they shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they go up the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourself for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the mountain, at the, sorry, at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. That's a really important word, that breakout. Hebrew word, perez. The Lord may break out against them. Hold on to that because we'll think about that in a little bit. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out, Perez, against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And then chapter 20 starts with the ten 
commandments. And we've got the Ten Commandments. We'll just skip over that. We'll spend a bit of time on that later uh, in another sermon or ten. And we get to verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, in smoke they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray. Father, in your mercy, we ask that you'd come and bring us revelation this morning about you and this passage. Would you speak deeply to us? As deep calls to deep. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is our last sermon in Exodus for a little while. Uh, but it's an incredibly important passage. Uh, some people, some scholars ha- have said that this, I don't agree with them, but they say this passage, this chapter 19, is the most important passage in the Bible. It's a very significant moment in the life of Israel. They have been brought out by God's love. He calls it eagle's wings, which is a lovely phrase there. They've been brought out on eagle's wings. God had promised Moses that he would bring them back to this mountain. And here they are, back at this place where it all began in Exodus chapter 3. Here they are, and God is there. Pivotal moment in the life of Israel. There is no denying that. I wonder if you've seen the movie, The Matrix. Uh, It's a great movie, came out in 1999, uh, and it's a science fiction movie. Uh, Generally, science fiction movies have two views of the future. One is utopian, okay, which is a lovely view of the future, uh, where everything works out, there's no more war, uh, there's no need even for money, there's complete equal opportunities, people are treated with dignity and treated well. And if you think about it, there's not actually many science fiction films or books that take the utopian view. The only one, interestingly, as it applies to humanity, is Star Trek. It has a utopian view of humanity. They do away with money. There are equal opportunities. Uh, Women can uh, captain starships and things like that. It's uh, a utopian view of the future. But even then, you've got the Borg and the Ferengi and other people as well putting their oar in. But that's a utopian view. Most science fiction movies and books have what is called, it's the opposite, a dystopian view, which is a very pessimistic view 
of the future. Think of Blade Runner and, and other movies, Terminator, a pessimistic view of the future. Well, The Matrix starts off just like a normal day. It's a very normal day. People go about their business. They go into Starbucks and have a coffee. They, they go to work. They, they kiss their wives goodbye. They eat good breakfasts, good lunches, good tea. The sun is shining and all is well. And there's one fellow, he's called Neo, who's a computer programmer. And he starts to work out that this isn't real. The world around him, he works out, is actually a very elaborate simulation. He is somewhere, the real Neo, is somewhere strapped into a machine with wires coming all out of him, and this machine is sucking him dry of his heat and his electrical activity to power itself. And in return, this machine gives him this view of humanity which is lovely, this dream world where he goes to work and he drinks nice coffee and eats good food and the sun is always shining and he has vacations at the beach. It's a good world, but none of it is real. And he starts to work this out. While there are a group of freedom fighters who come to him and they offer him a choice, the choice, Of two pills. One pill, the red pill, will show him what the world is really like. And if he takes that pill, he'll see the reality of the world. And it ain't pretty. It's grey. It's monochrome. He will realize that that the food he eats, which he thinks is, is most beautiful steak and chips, or stroke another... Uh, is actually just a tasteless, grey gruel that the machine feeds the people to keep them alive. But because they're all strapped up, the computer tells them it's the most beautiful meal he's ever had. They're locked inside all day in these pods. They're not outside at all. They're not running. They're not enjoying life. They are living inside a pod. But if he takes the red pill, he'll see the world for as truly is, and he can be free And live outside the pod. But actually if he'd prefer. He could take the blue pill. And be blissfully unaware. He could carry on living. The dream. And lots of the film actually. Is the tension in him. And actually some of the people around him. And there's this. There's this moment where one guy. Tired of eating the grey. Tasteless gruel throws down his spoon and basically says, I've had enough. I don't like reality. I I, I like the dream. Even though it wasn't real, it tasted nicer. It's an incredible decision to make, isn't it? Red pill? Do you want to know things as they really are? Or blue pill? Do you want to keep living the dream? There's an element of that in this passage. A big element. You remember that they have been moaning. We've seen that over the last couple of weeks. Moaning for drink. Moaning for uh, decisions to be made. Moaning for food. God has given them manna. And they collect this manna. And they're crying out. They want different stuff. They, they want something else. 
And they go to Moses and they say, look, Moses, let us go back to Egypt. There we were eating leeks and onions. Wouldn't be my top choice. Uh, I mean, think of the bread, the breath. But, you know, there we had leeks and onions by the Nile. Uh, And now, you know, we've just got this manna and quail. uh, And there's only so much you can do with manna before it starts to get quite, quite tasteless. Let us go back to our dream world. And, and they remember it all wrong. They forget that they were slaves. They just demand to go back. They want to go back to Egypt. But God feeds them and God leads them to this place. I carried you on eagle's wings. There's the welcome of God. But did you notice, even when we come to that, I, I carried you on eagle's wings But he said first, verse 4, chapter 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. God has rescued them from Egypt by grace and he gives them a choice. Red pill? Do you want to know how it's really going to be? Blue pill? Do you want to settle for something that's not real? That might be comfortable. That might be nice. But do you want to settle for the blue pill? Because the red pill is going to change everything. Because they come to the presence of of God. And what this chapter shows us, perhaps more than any other chapter in the Bible, why some scholars think it's so important, it shows us the holiness of God. They can't just whistle their way into his presence. They can't come skipping without a thought in the world. They have to take it very, very seriously. And so Moses meets with God And God says to him, I want this people to be a holy nation, to be like me. Holy is a great word, and Dawn was lovely. She talked about God's goodness. Holy itself means utterly different. It means completely other. God is completely different, completely other. We cannot comprehend him. We cannot hold him in our heads because he is infinitely large, infinitely good, infinitely spotless, and we have nothing to compare that to. We might try with three-leaf clovers and, you know, water, gas and ice and things like that, but none of them come close because God inhabits all of time equally. He doesn't just know the future. He's in the future. He doesn't just... uh, be in the future. He owns the future. And we can't comprehend that. He fills all of space and time equally. He knows everything. He knows what will happen and he knows the consequences of the things that won't happen. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. There is nothing he cannot do. Stupid question. Can, can he build a rock that's so heavy he cannot lift it? Yes, there is nothing he cannot do. In fact, there was a cross that God himself carried and it brought him to his knees. There is nothing that God 
cannot do. All-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing, everywhere, space and time. So we can't comprehend that. That's holy. Without sin, without fault. God is not moody. He doesn't have mood swings. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. He is always God. And then just to make it more complicated, there's Father, Son and Holy Spirit who are all equally God and one God. We can't get our heads around it. And here the children of Israel have an opportunity to be welcomed into that. They have the opportunity to go with Moses up the mountain and meet with God. Later we're going to be told that Moses meets with God as a man meets with his friend. That is what is on offer to this nation as they camp around at the bottom of this, this hill. They haven't just been rescued from Egypt. They've been rescued to something. A beautiful, intimate relationship with this over, uh, incredible, awesome, frightening, holy, other, spotless, pure God. That's the offer. It's not just manna. And quail, it's God himself who is offering himself. But there's some things that have got to happen. And the first is to consecrate themselves. Because God is different, they must be different too. And so we have this external Example for them, they're told that they have to have three days where they they wash. It's not going to do anything about them on the inside, not a thing. But it's giving them an idea, that's me washing, I haven't just got itches or fleas. That's me, I'm lathering myself up. They've got to wash. They've got to put on spotless clothes. Their clothes have got to be clean, their body has got to be clean. Because God is clean to the nth degree, we can't even get close to it. And if they're going to meet with God, they need to be in more than their Sunday best. And so they're given three days of preparation. I tell you, it's really struck me at just how easily I often walk into God's presence. I whistle in, talk to him in the car. Here, three days, getting ready. Abstain from sexual relationships. Keep yourself pure. You're going to meet with God. And in the center of it, Moses gets given the law. These ten commandments given to him to show us the character of God. How is God going to demonstrate this idea of purity? He tells them the things that are really close to God's heart. And we have these ten commands. And that's really good. We, we don't like the law often. But the law is really, really good. As Dawn said, it's like a mirror. We hold this mirror up and we can see ourselves as we go through this list. Love the Lord your God. As if there's no one else. Oh, not so good at that. And then we've got Horace with uh, not stealing things or fighting in the playground and this, that and the other. And we hold the mirror up to ourselves and we say, Ah, I fall short. 
And one of the most important things about the law, the Ten Commandments given to us, is that it shows us that we've fallen short. That actually we ourselves can't do it. And that's incredible. That is an amazing revelation for us. To realize we can't do it. So here is Isaiah, about a thousand years later, and he's a priest. And he's in the temple. It's the year that the king has died. It's a little bit of political instability. And he's tending at the altar, and God appears. God shows up. What does Isaiah do? He falls down almost as dead. And there are the angels, and, and they've got six wings, and they're, they're flying with two of their wings, and two of their wings, they're covering their eyes. And these angels are crying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah, the priest, is face down on the floor, crying, thinking he's going to die, saying, woe is me. And one of the angels comes and gets a, a, a coal from the altar and touches, consecrates Isaiah's lips. Because he's a man of unclean lips, living in a world of people with unclean lips. There's, there's another place uh, before that with King David and, and the Ark of the Covenant, the bits where they're keeping the Ten Commandments and different bits in there. They've got some manna in there and some other stuff as well. Uh, and that's been captured by the Philistines. And, and Israel, uh, well, Judah, actually goes and, and gets it, rescues it back, and they're carrying it back, but they're not doing it right. God has given them rules of how they're to carry the Ark. They need poles that are covered in gold, and, and they carry them. Uh, in between, but they haven't read that. They've just bunged it on top of a cart. Uh, and the cart is dragged by some oxen. The oxen have a trip and a stumble. The ark looks as if it's going to fall off, and a couple of helpful priests run along to try and steady the ark uh, and keep it on the cart. And that place has its name changed to Perez because God breaks out against them. Against the priests. They just thought they were doing the right thing. They're trying to steady the cart, keep the, 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 the uh, Ark of the Covenant safe. And God, who is holy, broke out against them. And the place forever has its name changed to Perez. And we see that with God throughout the Bible. Even in the New Testament, when Sophia and Ananias stand there and they lie to the Holy Spirit about how much money they've sold and how much money they are given, again, God breaks out. This holy God, there is a Perez moment, and first the husband and then the wife fall down dead because they've treated that which is holy as unholy. They've treated that which is other as completely normal. And so here is this holiness of God. And we read the law and we say, I fall short. I fall short. The law has other great reasons too for, for being. It, it's, uh, it acts as a restraint on us. You know, if, if we are tempted to do something wrong, we remember that the law is there and the law has punishments. Uh, you know, uh, since I had my police driving, uh, whatever it is, driving awareness course because I got caught speeding, I'm doing pretty well with my speeding because I don't want to be punished. I can only do one of those courses a year and I don't want to have to pay a hundred pounds fine. 
So I, I drive ridiculously slowly through uh, Ch- Chidduck or whatever it's called now. You know, I, I don't want to be caught. I, I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be on the wrong side of the law. And so the law is good because it acts as a restraint on us. It doesn't do anything for us inside because I still want to speed. I still want to get places quickly, but I don't want to be caught doing it anymore. So it's a restraint. And of course, that's really good for society. The law is brilliant for society. We couldn't live as a nation without law. Without that restraining all of society, it would be a free-for-all. It really would be this dystopian view of the future if there was no law. That's why certain Christians get very concerned when laws starting to get overturned or too many laws come in. Because there needs to be this perfect balance of freedom and restraint. So law is a a, a very important part of our life. And so the law is given, these ten commandments, and you get the reaction of the people. When the people, this is chapter 20, verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance And said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. This is a heartbreaking moment. Blue pill or red pill? Red pill or blue pill? The red pill, you'll see reality as it really is. And you will see that God is utterly different. That he is an all-consuming fire. That it's not comfortable. Because he's God. He's going to speak into your life. He's going to want to take ownership of your life. And he's going to determine how you live and where you go. Red pill, reality. Or blue pill, blissful ignorance. We just go on living the way we live. You do it all for us, Moses. You speak to God. You listen to God. You you hear what God's going to say for us. We'll remain at a distance. Thank you very much. We we don't we don't want this. This is a little bit frightening. C.S. Lewis says there's nothing quite like seeing a child pick up a dead object, like a dead frog. And they've got it, you know, in a box or something, and they're showing everyone the dead frog they've found. And then all of a sudden, it's actually not dead, and it jumps up at them. Woo! My sister-in-law had that experience. She had a leaf in the hall, and she went up to move the leaf, and it was actually a frog. And it jumped, and I'm sure she shrieked. It's nothing quite like that. When something you think is inanimate turns out to be alive, that's God. We treat this as a thing we do. Come to church. No skin off my nose. Come here, endure the sermon, maybe enjoy the songs. It's nothing. Go home. 
But actually, this is alive and living, and we come to God. And these children of Israel are offered this meeting with God to be with Moses, to come up the hill. They're told not to touch for three days. But when the trumpet blasts, when the sofa, that's what it's called, is blown, they are allowed to come and meet with God. Red pill or blue pill? Blue pill, thank you very much. I'm just taking a step back. You go, Moses. This is too much for us. So what about us? Well, here we go. If we turn our Bibles to, if you've got a pew Bible to page 1210, you get to Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, Hebrews is an amazing book. It's a New Testament book. It's written to a church. It's a sermon uh, spoken, actually, and it's been written down. It's a sermon spoken to a church that is about to turn its back on Jesus. And they're about to go back to Judaism. They're about to go back to Moses. They're going to leave Jesus behind and go back to Moses. What do I mean by that? They want to go back to Moses doing it all. Them having an intermediary. They want to leave Jesus and go back to Judaism. You see, Jesus is quite amazing. There's some amazing things that are going to happen after this law. Not only is Moses given the Ten Commandments, but Moses is also given detailed plans of a tent. Why? And we don't see that in Cecil B. DeMille. He comes down with plans for a tent. This tent is a place where you meet with God. It's a place where there can be sacrifice. Where all the things that, that, that they've done wrong can be overlooked by God. Because animals are going to take their place. And it's an amazing thing. This tabernacle, this tent plans are also given. As God demands holiness, he knows it can't be kept. And so he gives these plans for a tabernacle, a place of worship, a place where sins can be forgiven. Where the sacramental system will be unfolded that they can come to. It's amazing. But all of that, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, is just pointing the lambs and all of this is just pointing ahead to this one man who will come. This man who is God. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. And he is going to come as a perfect sacrifice. He is going to keep the law completely. Not just these Ten Commandments, but all of it. All 613 parts of it. Jesus is going to keep. He's going to keep, as it said, every jot and tittle of the law. He is never going to lie. He's never going to lust. He's never going to murder. He's going to honor God in all that he does. He leads a perfect life. And he's going to be murdered for it. But in murdering for it, his blood speaks a word. Or two words, actually. Not guilty. Or one word, consecrated. And it's incredible. All who come to faith in Jesus, red pill, real reality, all who come to faith in Jesus have all the things that they've ever done wrong, all the things that have ever been done wrong to them, taken away so that they can come face to face with God like Moses did. 
as a man speaks with his friend. That's the beauty of it. And here we are in Hebrews with a group of people who are trying to turn away from it. Go back to the old way. Actually, we don't want to deal with God in person. It's much easier to deal with it through a person, isn't it? It's much easier for me to have a, a relationship with God and you come once a week and hear what I've said than for you to have a relationship with God. But you know, God wants all of us to come. So here are these people in Hebrews. Let's look at this. Look, verse 14, you see just above it in your pew Bible, it says there, a warning against refusing God. And the writer, this, this preacher in Hebrews, talks about Exodus 19. Look what he says. Make every effort to live in peace with all people and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see God. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. That's Jesus. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought with blessings and tears. You might need to look back about a year and a half to our Genesis series to understand that. Verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Here the writer saying, you've not been called to that. You've been called to something different. Jesus. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all people, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator. Mediator, the one between you and God. Not Moses, not an Andy Caldwell, not a preacher, not a Christian superstar, not Joyce Mayer. You have come to Jesus. The mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And then there's this warning. See to it you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will not only shake the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is holy, immortal, invisible, God only wise. And we are not. He is an all consuming fire. And we cannot come to Him on our own. Blue pill or red pill. You can choose the blue pill today. You can keep your distance from him. You can carry on in blissful ignorance, giving God barely a thought. Maybe just keep him for Sundays. Blue pill. Or you could take the red pill today. It's not easy. Because God's an all-consuming fire. But Jesus has made a way. The red pill red with the blood of Jesus that covers you. The red pill that beckons you come into friendship, relationship with God. As you take the red pill slowly, day by day, bit by bit, you will be changed. And you will start to become more like Jesus. And as you become more like Jesus, people will see that you're becoming more like Jesus. And people will start to meet Jesus through you. If you take that red pill, it won't be easy. You can no longer call your life your own. You belong to someone else. You can't eat what you want when you want. Sometimes you have to pick up a cross. And crosses have splinters. Sometimes you may be ignored or threatened or overlooked. There'll be times when you be asked to compromise and you can't do that because you've taken the red pill. But you're living in reality. Or you can just take the blue pill and just go on as if nothing's changed. Let's pray. There may be some in this room who want to take the red pill. They have no idea what it means or what it will look like. Haven't really understood a thing I'm talking about. But they know they want reality. If you want to take the red pill... If you want to know God, then Jesus says, I am the way to know God. I am the truth about God. And I am the life of God. Come to me. So if you want to take that path, just pray with me now. In quietly, silently in your heart. Almighty God, I don't understand you, but I want to know you. I want to walk up that mountain and meet with you as a friend. I don't want to know you at a distance through books and sermons and other people's experiences. I want to know you, almighty God, face to face. As a person meets with their best friend. 
Lord, I know I'm not holy. I know that there is much that I do that is wrong. In the name of Jesus, please forgive me. Cleanse me, make me clean, that I might see God and be his friend. Thank you for the cross where you, Jesus, died in my place so I wouldn't. Where you died as my substitute so I could look at God without dying. Thank you. Would you fill me with your life now? With the life of the red pill? Would you pour your Holy Spirit upon me? And would you open my eyes that I might see Jesus? And then for those of us that want to take the blue pill, I want to pray too for us. Father, help us to have a taste for reality. We're not against you, we just don't understand you. Find it hard to believe in you. So would you help? Would you meet us in our unbelief? Would you this week break through my blissful existence and show me the real God? In Jesus' name, amen.